keep on kissing babies and hugging fat girls. Sell out full of suffering, succotash, son. But it's me, Austin. Oh, son of a bitch. What? It's me, Austin. It was me all along, Austin. And your teeth look like two tight too, Billy. And you book a match with me, that's right, Killing. Look at me. I'm a total package. I will rip him apart. I'm pissed now. Where to, Stephanie? Welcome to Total F and Marks. This is the king of sad style, the man with the largest calves in the world, the St. Germain event. That's me, Dancer and Germain. I talk in third person because I have a mental illness. Um, I'm here today with uh, a guy that I met at StarCast and uh, all in. Uh, great dude. Um, you know him as the Blue Meanie, but uh, he also goes as Brian Heffron. Brian, how you doing? Hey, man. What's going on? Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing it, man. I really appreciate it. It was so uh, cool to run into you there. And, you know, like, uh, you know, it, it felt like hanging out with another comic, you know? So uh, awkward, but in a familiar way. No, it was uh, it was great to see you, and thank you for doing the, the podcast. I really appreciate it. Hey, you know, I think it's we're all a part of the uh, Mutual Admiration Society where uh, you like wrestling and I love comedy. So... Uh, it's just like when two worlds collide, you know, uh, you know, with this, like the chocolate and the peanut butter and the Reese cup. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, like two, two of the things I, I loved growing up was pro wrestling and stand up comedy. And, uh, I admire anybody who could stand up in front of a, a crowd by themselves with just a microphone with the, uh, sole job of just having to be funny. Have you done stand up before or the one man show route? Really? No, no, I have not done stand up. Uh, I mean, as much as I admire it, and people have tried to talk me into it, but uh, I think the first heckler I put through a table or something. But you know, uh, I, I think I, I, I guess the closest thing I've done to stand up comedy is uh, I did the uh, Iron Cheek roast at uh, Caroline oh, two that, years ago, and that's where you probably met Mike Lawrence, right? Yes, 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 and. Uh, it was it was horrifying <laughs> because you know uh, I'm sitting there and as the night's going on I had like all these thoughts and ideas written out and as people are going up and they're you know you know they're picking off some of the stuff I I might have said I didn't have to uh, change you know the jokes on the fly and stuff like that and they put me on like second to last I was like oh my god please put me on first yeah how'd it go <laughs> you know. But uh, it was cool, man. It was cool. It was nerve-wracking. But uh, I think out of all the wrestlers they had there, uh, you know, guys came up to me like Jesse Joyce and stuff like that and said, you know, except for like maybe a flood line here or there, I did okay. So, That's you great. know, I got through it pretty much unscathed. That's high compliments, <laughs> too. Jesse is, um, you know, one of the things I just did, the Pritchard roast, and that's that's where we met. And uh, one of the things that I did to prep for that roast, and I'm terrible at roast battling. I, I, I battled Mike Lawrence, the roast battle of comedy store. I totally ate my fucking dick. But like one of the one of the uh, to prep for the Pritchard roast is that I just watched Greg Giraldo's roasts for like a month straight, or I guess it was like yeah. a week and a half straight. And the thing about him is like 
he was always fucking really good. He may have never been like, you know, there's the roast where it's like, oh, Jeselnik really stood out or, oh, Lisa Lampanelli or Patrice really stood out. But he was like consistently great, really good the whole time. You know, like he was the guy yeah. you could count on in every roast um, because of that just consistency. Um, and I, and I, I think that that's, that's really important with roast writing. I, I also think it's like, you know, when we were doing the Pritchard roast, we were on the side. It was me, Shuley from the Stern show, Ron Funches, Taylor Williamson, Mike Lawrence, and James Mattern was on stage. And, and, you know, as, as we're doing the roast and we're seeing where people were going up, you know, we're crossing things off. You know, we have a whole sheet of, I'm like, Oh, we hit that joke. I can't fucking touch on that. Or, uh, this because you know you don't want to be going out there and somebody you know I guess to use wrestling terminology somebody just use your finisher it's not going to mean as much when you get out there and do it you know yeah yeah and it's like a thing uh, I, I teach young kids uh, wrestling and I tell them at the Monster well, Factory show, right in New well, Jersey well, well, I, uh, I'm sorry at the Monster Factory yeah yeah I'm uh, one of the coaches over at the Monster Factory and when I tell these kids is when we have events. Watch every match on the card, you know, because if somebody did, like, if you got this big, intricate thing and somebody does it in the first match, they don't need to see it in the second or third match, you know? You know, they they, they can leave, like, right there, then and there, you know, because they've seen the whole show. So it's, it's always good to keep, a, you know, an eye on what, you know, everybody else is doing on the show, just like in a roast. It's, it's good to, you know, pay attention to whether what other stories, you know, I mean, whether bits or jokes, you know, people are doing in rows, you know, so, because, you know, wrestling and stand-up are a lot similar that way where you got to think on your feet, you know. You must be such a terrific teacher just because of how accessible you are as a person. And a lot of times you hear about all these uh, training schools, the wrestling, and you hear, you know, the horror stories of people getting bullied and, and kind of like broken in the old way, you know, you, the famous story, you know, Hogan getting his leg broken or I think that that was it, which you never know with Hogan, what, what truth he's telling, but like, have you found it to be a rewarding experience? Where do you compare it? Like, do you enjoy teaching as much as you enjoyed being in the ring? I, I, I do like, I do like teaching. Um, you know, uh, I'm not doing as much as I, I'd, I'd like to right now, but what I like to think of myself is, uh, as like, uh, a life coach. Yeah. You know, you know I'm not in there, rolling around or taking bumps. But what I'm, I am doing there is uh, getting guys, pulling them aside, tell them what they did right, tell them what they did wrong, uh, and then, you know, give them, you know, lay out a map of what to expect in the wrestling business, you know, whether it be politics or, you know, what it's like to travel on the road or, there's, I mean, there's more to wrestling than just in-the-ring stuff. I could teach you that all day. I could teach a, a monkey how to do moves. But, oh, you know, it's the, the whys, the whens, the hows, the, and, you know, you know when to, you know, stretch things out, when to cut things short. You know, you know if it's not working, edit on the fly, stuff like that. But, you know, I made, in this business, I made so many mistakes. And, uh, you know, I wish, you know, I could put my brain now in the 20-year-old Blue Meanie or Brian Heffron, whatever, because, you know, I probably would have done even even better. So if I can pass on the stuff I've learned through my mistakes and stuff that, like, the vet other veterans have passed on to me, you know, wrestling gave me so much, it's, it's only right that I, I pass it along to 
you know, the next generation. You know, you mentioned mistakes. I mean, are there things that you, you, you know, wish like if you could, if you could put yourself in your own body now as 20 year old, you know, Brian Heffron, like what would you, what, what were some things that you'd tell yourself to do differently? Uh, man, that's a great question. Uh, the thing I would probably, uh, teach myself, oh man, uh, probably just, uh, you know, be in a little bit of a better shape, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, I always wanted to be one of the big wrestlers and stuff like that, but, you know, growing up, uh, I never really had anybody around me that was, you know, you know, into fitness, you know, nobody in my family went to the gym. Nobody, you know, did that. You know, my grandmom's idea of a healthy salad dressing was this lettuce tomato with mayonnaise on it. You know, oh, I wish I would have looked more into like the uh, nutritional side of the business, which is something I didn't learn until well, way too late. Not that I look like the, you know, not that I look like Mr. Olympia now. Well, you know, lost 120 but, uh, pounds, man. That's incredible. I've kind of painted myself into a corner where, you know, they expect a certain look, you know, there's a, there's a point where I lost 150 pounds because WWE wanted me to lose weight. Wow. And, uh, they had let me go and then I had to go back on the Indies and I had lost all this weight and I started losing bookings because I didn't look like the blue meanie anymore. That's yeah. But that's, that's the other that, follow up you know, question. Yeah. My, my look was kind of a blessing and, and a curse because, you know, my look got me the job, but it probably wasn't, you know, the best, you know, the best, uh, lifestyle at the time, you know, you know, I have a friend in the business now and he's, he's lost about a hundred pounds. He's been in a ton of shit. Um, and you know, he's, you know, he says, it's like, dude, when you, when you become a skinny fat guy, you lose, you lose more opportunities than when you're a fat, fat guy, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's like, yeah. it's like, because you're not, you're not, you know, you're not in that skinny category you're just kind of in that well i'm healthy for my frame but because of that you don't fit this archetype i mean you know food i think is is without a doubt and i, and I, I suffer from a bunch of addictions you know and um but food for me i think is is the toughest like i mean yeah. we're losing that weight i mean i, I remember uh you know I, I remember god this was like a behind the music for blues traveler john popper would talk about being able to like be on the road and when he would he would smell certain fast food chains and you know like oh that's a wendy's that's a burger king what was it like losing that weight and and saying no to some of this shit? like what kind of mental preparation did you have to use uh, i mean i mean like what i said the, the, the cool thing about being on the road is like after a show there's really no real good places to eat you know there's always like the denny's or you can find a diner or stuff like that just not you know i wish i could have you know, learn to, like you said, like meal prep, you know, uh, bring some Tupperware. You know, I, I look at Stevie Richards now and I see everything he goes through and with his food prepper, he'll like cook stuff out, you know, he'll cook a, a week's worth of meals and have them already laid out for a week. And I'm like, man, that's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely what, you know, and that's another thing I talked about with like Paul Bearer too, you know, because he had the, he had similar issues, you know, with try, you know you're trying to lose weight, but you know you get out of a show at like eleven o'clock, you know, midnight, and you're, it's real slim pickings when it comes to you know 
eating healthy, healthy on the road. I mean, you could probably go get a good breakfast somewhere, but at night you're like, oh man, it's 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 it, it's it's not that good. Well, and it's also like for me personally, like. Like, you know, like, you know, I have a girlfriend now and I, I don't drink and use drugs. I, you know, I have a year sober back. I had longer than that, but I, I fell off last year for a couple of days. Um, but like, you know, the re- way to reward myself or uh, console myself if I have a bad set or a good set is like, oh, I can just, you know, order a fucking, you know, a large, uh, you know, uh, ultimate pepperoni pizza from, you know, Domino's <laughs> and, and then I eat it and then I shit my fucking brains out. And the next day, I feel like I just feel like I just drank, you know, a bottle of Grey Goose the night before. I mean, I I, I didn't do anything fucked up or dumb, but um, I still like I'm still walking around with that dehydration and just like, you know, feeling like right. I I just like you know it, it's 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 weirder except for you know you look over and instead of like a, a, a dumb text you sent or like you know oh man I shouldn't have hooked up with this person it's just an empty pizza box you know. <laughs> Um, and, uh, it, it's that same sort of like the, the shame, the shame spiral, you know? Well, we're, you're in New York, right? I'm in New York now. Yeah. And I just started yeah, doing and, and, and New York's a lot like Philadelphia where you, there's good places to eat on every corner. And, you know, I don't even know why national food chains try to make it, you know, set up shop here in Philly or New York when you got all these great mom and pop shops, you know, and like you said, you just go get a, a large pizza and just, uh, you know, just, you know, make that last throughout the day, you know? I'll tell you one of the reasons, and this isn't the only reason, but I think one of the reasons is um, that, like, a lot of people are moving to New York from Midwestern towns. So, like, they yeah. get homesick and they're like, man, I wish, God, I want to eat at a rallies. And then, oh, my God, New York has a rallies, you know? And it's almost this right. nostalgic eating you know, it's, you're not- it's like my buddy, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar, I'm sure you know him, Richard Christie from the Howard Stern Show. Yeah, he uh, he did the, um, no, not Richard Christie, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, he surely did the rest, but yeah, of course Richard, I know Richard Christie. Christie. Lives, Richard lives there in New York, and he moved over from you know, Kansas, and you know, his favorite pizza place is Papa John's, and everybody's like, how can you eat Papa John's when you live in New York City? There's so many good, you know, pizza places, like, you know, stuff like that. So he's like, Cause you know, I, I don't want, I don't want pizza. Get... I want cheese, bread, and dipping sauce. You oh, know? the garlic sauce is the ultimate gimmick. That's where they get you. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's like the Olive Garden with the breadsticks, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's. A, I've, I've, I've never, you know, I went to Olive Garden once in college, and luckily I haven't gone down that road. But you go to Times Square and and everything is a fucking chain, you know. And you're just, I, I think people, especially tourists too, they get, they get like really, um, they get intimidated, and it's like, oh well, we know this is good, so let's go here instead of going to Little Italy and doing the work. Or you know, you're an international tourist and you're like, oh, I'm in America, so I should eat a TGI Fridays or Burger King or McDonald's and. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, it's crazy because that that stuff just runs through you. We we've, we've been doing in my house, and I'm and I'm not even getting a commercial plug for it, but we've been doing Eat Clean Bro, and uh, and it's kind of like a meal prep service, and you know it still tastes good, um, but you know it's less calories and it's less of the less of all the the uh, you know in, enhancement products they put into this stuff, um, but yeah, you know like I I, I still want to celebrate my you know 
my wins by going across the street and you know getting a McFlurry from McDonald's. That's always going to be me. I, I, I was from, I don't know about you, but I was from a family of emotional eaters, which seems like you were as well. If your mom was putting mayo on, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm grandma, sorry. I loved, I, you know, I love the BWO. That was one of the things that got me into ECW. Uh, <laughs> it's fucking. Have you ever? I, this is a question. Have you? Did you? Have you ever talked to Scott Hall about your impression of him? It's funny you bring that up. Um, at the time, I, like I just said, there's a period in my time, period of life where I lost 160 pounds. Uh, WWE released me, and then I went back to ECW, and uh, they tried me as this new character since I'd lost this all this weight. And uh, there, this was around the weekend that ECW brought Scott Hall in. So. Uh, yeah, you know, Scott Hall's making around. So I go up to him. I go, "Hi, I'm Brian." Blah blah blah. And he walks off. So I go, "Yeah, you know, he, he was cordial, but he walked off." I was like, "Ooh, man, I wonder if he's still mad about the BWO." So, he, you know, five minutes later, he comes back. He so he goes, "Dude, I didn't know you were the Blue Meanie." You know, <laughs> they told me you're the Blue Meanie. And it's like he's like, it's, it's "Nice to meet." You. I was like, "Hey, man, I, I hope you don't mind the whole BWO thing." He's like, "Oh, absolutely not," uh, because he said, you know, when you know the NWO guys were on traveling on the road. They're always watching wrestling, whether WWE, ECW, or catching their own Nitro replays. And he said he would. They would watch ECW stuff, and when the BWO was happening, Scott Hall would rib Kevin Nash because I portrayed Scott Hall in the BWO, and you know I'm the Blue Meanie, leader of the Blue World Order. He's like, well, I, if he's playing me, I should be the leader of the New World Order. You know? <laughs> so he would he would rib Kevin about, hey, you know. You know, I think we should, we should uh, you know, build this thing around me, you know, in a in a, in a kidding way. But um, but then, like, when I was in WWE, I ran into Sean Waltman, and, you know, because he was in DX at the time. Great guy. I was guy. like, hey, man, I hope you guys didn't mind, you know, the NWO stuff. He's like, nah, man. man you know, I mean, I hope you didn't mind the BWO stuff. He's like, nah, man. You know, that was, that was some fun stuff. And, you know, we took it as a compliment. And Kevin Nash has said the same, you know, the greatest, you know, Form of flattery's imitation, or you know, the greatest, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, especially because they were doing somehow, fake diesel he, and fake razor in WWE. But, yeah, uh, it, it was cool that you know the BWO was supposed to be just like a one night thing, and it turned into be like you know a, a good five six months run, which led to Stevie, you know, May Evening ECW's you know first pay per view ever. And then, you know, flash forward all these, you know, 20-some-odd years later, and I'm still seeing BWO shirts on, you know, Monday Night Raw, which is it's totally mind-boggling, you know, for something that was a parody and it's supposed to be just like a one-night-only gimmick. I'm so fortunate. You know, me, Stevie, and Nova are so fortunate that, you know, you know, people still remember that, you know. And then the cool thing about the BWO shirts is if you went to an ECW show, ECW show, they stood out in the crowd because most – you know, wrestling shirts are predominantly like black in design, or you know, black shirts or whatever kind of design. And there's all you see all these blue shirts in the crowd. It was so cool, so and it's so flattering. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I can't. I, I I did the most desperate thing on David Shoemaker's podcast. From like, I will give you guys. I forget what I said. I'll give you an autograph or something on my free album, and I will get it autographed by a bigger comedian if I see one sign. Uh, that says the name of my podcast, and, and it didn't happen. It was the ultimate, like, 
calling the girlfriend from high school 10 years later phone you know phone call it was just the utter utterly sad um <laughs> which is a good transition to the end of ECW like what was it like for the last uh couple were you there the last couple days was it this cuz i've been on canceled shows before you know and it's such a weird vibe when you know a show is not coming back or there's confusion over it's not coming back and you can kind of feel it in the air but you you're not really sure what it is and half the people are like it's done and half the people are like you know no it's coming back and it's it's almost this like weird waiting room of a hospital feeling but what what was it like at the end of ECW for you personally well it, the weird thing about like towards the end of ECW is like uh I was in WWE and then like I would stop by you know I live right near East Arena so I would stop by the show and you know, I would talk to like guys like Nova and stuff. They're like, and this is right in the beginning when like, like but this is before I went back to Sabi, but like in the you know beginning of the you know the new TV deal with uh, the TNN and stuff like that. It's like, hey man, how's things here? It's like, oh man, it's great. If you come back here, we got we're getting our own TV deal. We got our own video game. We got action figures, stuff like that. So I was like, man, well, WWE doesn't work out. I got something to go back to. And then, you know, months later, you know, WWE releases me. I, you know, I show back up and Paulie was kind enough to bring me back. And, you know, it didn't really, you didn't really notice it, notice it. I mean, because, like, it's weird because, like, the shows were still selling out, you know. They were right. still drawing great houses. They sold out, you know, three or two or three nights at the, you know, the uh, Hammerstein Ballroom, you know. It, that, uh, you know, when I think back, you know, of companies that are closing, I think back to, you know, when I used to watch the AWA on ESPN as a kid in high school, and, you know, they went from running, you know, uh, you know, arenas to running, like, empty studios, and you see Jake the Milkman Milman running around with the Turk and, you know, the, the team, you know, Team Challenge series or whatever. So, I mean, you look at, you know, so, you know how AWA went out, and then you're looking at ECW, and the shows were still jam-packed with fans you're like how you know you, you try to think of how they lost money and stuff like that and do you have any ideas in, in your mind what happened what's that i mean there's a million different narratives as far as you know like whose fault it was they went financially under whether or not it was you know Heyman, whether or not it was you know the cable co- company but in your mind did you know and I'm, i really don't know enough about the situation but to cast any aspersions either way but what do you think was the financial downfall there the financial downfall was just that TNN deal where ECW was the guinea pig for that network to see if wrestling would fly, and they expected ECW to have all these this top-notch production, and the network didn't want to, you know, provide any of it. You know, ECW had to go out and rent their own, you know, uh, you know, you know, editing truck. You know, their multi-cam shoots. Uh, and then when it came to you know the actual TV product, they didn't put one dime into advertising the show, or ECW didn't get to really advertise anything. And you know they, they're sinking all this money into the production, and then you also have try to, to try to pay talent. But you know ECW, where you know when guys were there, they were getting paid. You know, uh, like say 1997. You know, so you had a good year in 1997, you're still paying for 1996. Right. And then in 1998, you're still paying for 1997. So it was a cut between, 
it being a continuous game of trying to play catch up to the previous year, if if the you know, PNN had some any kind of money and you know to actually help along with the production, PCW probably would have flourished and if it would have stuck around, it would have became something like a Ring of Honor type promotion. Right? So yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. Guts. You know, you know I, that much more longer. You can only you know do that for so long, and you know expect you know people to uh, have a healthy career. You know, you know, kind of like how the NFL is trying to you know, you know, protect people with all these uh, tackles and hits now with you know these you know penalties and stuff like that. I think ECW would have eased up on the, you know, the gas and you know went more of the the way of technical like Ring of Honor is now. So, right. But uh, I mean, everybody's got their theories. But uh, I, I remember the time when, you know, they, you know, it was like officially ECW was closed and ECW ran their last show in Arkansas, of all places, which made no sense because they had just run the ECW arena the week before. Why not just do your last show at the ECW arena? That would be full circle. And I'm sitting there talking to Joel Gertner, you know, back when AOL Instant Messenger was, was a thing. He's like, he's like, Arkansas, they, they, the last show is in Arkansas. <laughs> Why not? And, you know, where it's like, yeah, we're just in the East Sub Arena, you know, East Sub Arena. But it was just so surreal. It's like, we're just, it's like kind of like when Andy Kaufman died. Everybody's waiting for him to pop out of the, you know, the Kaufman go, ah, surprise. Everybody's waiting for, you know, East Sub closed. And then everybody's waiting for somebody to go, ah, somebody just swooped in and bought it up and it's still alive. You know, everybody's still holding on because, you know, like I said, Every show was sold out, you know, or, you know, or, you know, nine-tenths sold out, you know, it, it didn't make sense for it to, you know, to go out like that. Well, it's, it's, it was such a truly special promotion, and I, and I think, too, with that, you know, it's almost like, you know, as a wrestling fan now, I remember being a teenager and, you know, wanting to watch ECW, and it, it, it had this thing where you had to find it. It didn't find you, you know, and because you had to find yeah. it, you know, the, the gritty element of how the pay-per-views were run really worked for it. But if you're getting something presented to you as a consumer, then you kind of have a different expectation, you know? Right. Like, it's, it's, right. Like, it's like being like, you know, it, it's, it's the difference of like, you know, watching, uh, you know, the VMAs and you expect a great performance versus like, oh my God, I got this underground... Uh, Grateful Dead show that I'm listening to on audio and it's amazing because it's so fucking gritty. But the the one thing right. I thought and Paul Ham was was great at, um, you know, and I think that the kind of, and, and, and so much of the credit goes to you guys for this is that like no matter who left, the main events still seemed important. You know, like they were so yeah. great at elevating people. Uh, I don't think yeah. any company has come close to that where they made everyone seem so fucking important to the point of, you know, you see Taz and ECW and he looks like an indestructible monster. And then he goes to WWE and it's almost like, you know, and I love Taz, but it's like watching, you know, the old man behind the curtain and Oz, you know, he gets in the ring and you're like, all right, he's a short guy <laughs> that can kind of work, you know? And I mean, Paul, yeah. Paul Heyman was such a genius at doing that. And, and, and another part of Paulie's genius was he listened to other people in the locker room as well. I mean, I mean, he could come up with all the ideas in the world, but like if you had an idea that enhanced his idea, he wouldn't shoot it down and go, "Oh, your idea is better." No, we're going to go with my idea. 
still idea was better. He goes, he would, you know, pop and go, absolutely, let's do that. You know, uh, I remember uh, like one of my last matches there in the in uh, at the Hammerstein as wrestling balls Mahoney, and uh, we're trying to take it to finish. I was like, dude, you know, he wanted his balls to win. I was like, balls, when you're done, you know, hit me over the head with the, the chair. You know, I'll be down. You put your foot on me, and you you, you lift your chair up like a you know a guy in battle lifting up his sword to the crowd. And like Paul was like watching me explain this to you know balls. He's got like this smile on his face, like you know, like he likes you know when people have their own input and you know put their own fingerprints on it as well as his. You know, uh, look at guys like Raven. You know, Raven you know created so many characters. And he should not be he created the Dudleys, he created me, Stevie Richards, you know, then there's you know, Tommy Dreamer, he was you know, Paulie stuck in the command and then uh, you know you know, Taz had his say, Sabu had his say. It was it was a it was definitely a collaboration. You know, he was you know, Paul was like the Rick Rubin and you know, the the roster was the band. And oh, so he just let he helped bring out the best in each player to to perform each and every night, even on a night where, you know, you're showing up to the building, you know, you've got aches and pains and maybe have a little bit of a boo-boo face. And, like, you could just go and talk to Paul. He'll lay out a match. And by that time he's done talking to you, you're, like, ready to, you know, run through a brick wall for the guy. You know, right, he's he definitely could... a motivator. And, I mean, look at him all these years now. He's one of the t- still one of the top promos in the business because – he knows how to evoke emotions out of people. Do you think he you gets? Know? Do you yeah. think he gets an unfair amount of heat for, you know, ECW closing? Like, because it seems to me, from talking to you, it's it's more of an amalgamation of factors. It's the fact that you know, you had you know TNN not providing, you know, the production uh, equipment that you guys needed, and and also you see a company like TNA that's been in business forever and has had such financial straits. I mean, do you think that a little bit, it, it, a little bit of, it, it's a little bit unfair to blame like, cause a lot, you know, a lot of wrestlers and people will, you know, bitch about checks not being there or, or, or they'll put the blame on Vince, you know, even though Vince was propping the business up for so many years. I mean, do you think it was like, what, what, what's your opinion on that? Do you think it's an amalgamation of reasons it stopped? Like a variety I, of reasons. The one, thing, the, the one thing that kind of hurts me about you still be going out of business is, you know, everybody, it seems like people, you know, make, you know, people making jokes of it, you know? Like, oh, you know, Paulie can't wait to, you know, Paulie's checks all these bounce and all this stuff. And then, uh, you know, I was watching, you know, speaking of Starcast, I was watching the debate between Bischoff and Pritchard. And, you know, somebody asked about ECW and they were like, Oh well, guys weren't getting paid. We could pay them more and all this stuff. And I'm sitting there going, "Yeah, well, I mean, you could say that when you have the backing of a, you know, a millionaire. You know, right. you know, WWE had you know Vince, and then you know WCW had uh, you know Ted Turner's money. But you know, you know, ECW was starting. You know, was you know. Yeah, you know, started as, you know, ground up. It was, you know, do it yourself. It was built on the backbone of, you know, Todd Gordon, you know, making, a, you know, an investment, taking a risk 
because you know Todd Gordon didn't have to do anything in wrestling. He was well off. He has a successful business. He has the second oldest business in the history of Philadelphia. He's making bank, and but he wanted to do something with wrestling, and he went and went through all the financial things to make ECW happen. Then Paul Heyman comes along, and you know him, and it turned out him and his father sunk in. Got ungodly amounts of money to make ECW happen, you know, you know, close to a million dollars, you know, to to make ECW happen. So it's like ECW did what it, it had to do to survive. Were they paying the guys, you know, six figure salaries? No, but I mean, guys weren't really starving until the TNN deal, you know. But uh, you know, I, I that's the one thing that you know take you know annoys me. Sometimes it seems like you know. Uh, it, People, you know, ripped off ECW and stuff like that and took, you know, great glee and, you know, the competitors took great glee in, you know, watching the demise. But then, you know, there's, you know, people are like, you know, ECW is the best singer and, you know, I could sit here and go, people, I could stand here and go, you know, ECW is better than TNA and people go, well, TNA is still around. And I was like, well, yeah, you know, we had, you know, the top energy company in all of Texas. You know, fit in the bill, <laughs> right? You know, you know to keep the you know their daughter's uh, you know project going, you know pet project going, right? Well, know, yeah, I mean, you see, you see that all the time. I mean, Jerry was smart enough to get out, you know, and they found you know somebody willing to you know take it the, the company off his hands. So yeah. you know, yeah, Panda Energy fit in the bill. It's you know, yeah, ECW had Pico, our, our energy company, and Philadelphia is Pico Energy. If we had Pico Energy sponsoring every show, ECW would still be around. You know, but yeah, ECW yeah. was this, uh, you know was punk rock. I mean, it was. Oh, it was the coolest, dude! It was the coolest. One. When I was a kid, it was the coolest. It, it brings to mind too, you know, like. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I worked for Fuse years ago. I, I wrote on a, a show called. Uh, Hoppison music, which was, you know, Mark Hoppison was actually Amy Schumer's first, you know, like uh, co-hosting gig, you know, and then obviously she became Amy Schumer. But, you know, the whole network wasn't getting any ratings, but it it's easy to run a television company when your president also owns Madison Square Garden, the Knicks and the Rangers, you know, right, um, right. you know, it's it, it, it's just a lot easier. I, I think people don't understand you know the business uh, of it, you know, and and I, and and rightly so. I, I'm I'm glad that you know Ring of Honor is still around, and because you know, you know, and I, you know, it's it's sometimes good if a company doesn't get too big too fast. I mean, there there are plenty examples of uh, you know, uh, situ- you know, situations where companies like, oh my God, this is the hottest burger joint in Los Angeles. Let's branch this off into a million different locations. And then there's not the much, and then there's not the return, and then you know you're 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 afraid of losing a franchise in the first place. So it's almost right. a cautionary tale. It's like how the how the fuck can these crowds be so packed, and a company still goes down? You know, it's right crazy. But anyway, I, 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 enough on that. But one of the things that I'm I'm really interested in it's it's something I just asked Colt Cabana um, when you were growing up outside wrestling. What were your artistic influences like? You know, because, you know, I'm a stand-up comic now, and, you know, I'd say, you know, uh, and, you know, it's it's funny now, it's hard, I don't know if this is the same for you, but it's, when I get home from doing sets, it's harder for me to watch comedy just because I need a break. Um, 
But when I was going growing up, it was wrestling. It was it was theater. It was it was movies. But when you, when you were coming up, what was kind of your escape besides wrestling? Uh, yeah, it's like when you come home from a comedy gig, you don't you you don't want to watch comedy because you're like the chef who doesn't want to go home and cook a meal, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, growing up, uh, uh, wrestling was like my ultimate escapism. You know, I grew up severe asthmatic, but like, there's three loves in my life. It was pro wrestling, mm. uh, stand-up comedy, and music. Specifically, Van Halen. That was my favorite band of all time. You know, still is. Yeah. But, how many uh, times have you, have you seen them? I'm sorry. Have you seen them in concert? Uh, oh yeah, I'm, absolutely. I've seen Van Halen every tour since '88. Uh, the OUA wow. went to tour and so uh, how many Van Halen to shows? To me, it's all about Andy. To me, it's all it's all about Andy. You know, it just uh, you know, to me, he, in my opinion, you know, I'm sure people will argue it, but to me, he's the second coming of Jimi Hendrix. You know, it's like does Jimi like I'll give Jimi Hendrix the number one spot. Okay, you know, Jimi Hendrix had the number one spot to me. You know, Eddie Van Halen's like right there, one and one A stuff like that, but. uh yeah, people go. Oh, what's your favorite singer? I go, Nah, dude. It's it's all about Eddie. You know, yeah. I can I can you know I wish Eddie would have done like a few like albums where it was just instrumentals. You know, you know I could you know I don't even need I, I don't even need like uh, you know you know aside from his porn record he did, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the porn soundtrack. But uh, which we call it, you know I could just listen to Eddie play. You know, I don't even need like Sandy Dave or you know Gary Schroen singing. But yeah, I got to see them uh, see them a few times, and uh, got to meet them once for like you know twenty seconds, and I almost cried like a baby. But uh, <laughs> you know, it's so funny with music. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, and I've seen so many great wrestling events, and I've you know I've seen uh, so many great fucking comedy sets, and I've seen such you know I've seen awesome play. I saw John C. Riley and Philip Seymour Hoffman and True West growing up. It's got right. nothing on fucking a great concert. I mean, music is like the number one art form. I don't I don't think there's even a debate. Well, for me growing up, you know, my favorite, you know, my number one comedian of all time is George Carlin. Uh, just growing up, you know, right at the advent of HBO, it seemed like every year George Carlin was putting out a, a comedy special. And, uh, you know, I've seen, you know, comedians on TV before. You know, you always see somebody on, you know, Johnny Carson or, you know, all the talk shows and stuff like that. But, like, like when I first saw George Carlin, he was like the first comedian I ever saw that like cursed. Yeah. So I was, you know, I was blown away. But he didn't like curse the curse. He was almost like poetic about it, you know. And uh, you know, George was, you know, just an amazing wordsmith. You know uh, how he can almost tell things like a limerick. You know, he can get a he got, he could get a cadence. You know, and he, he can, you know, speak low, and then he yells, and then he, he gets back. And and by the time, you know, he gets to the punchline, you know, you're like a cat watching a laser pointer. You know, you're just, <laughs> like, into it, you know. And, uh, you know, George Carlin was always my number one. And then uh, as time grew on, I started watching guys like, you know, uh, of course, like Andrew Dice Clay. And as a teenager, I snuck in to see Sam Kinison twice. Oh wow! How was uh, that in Atlantic City? I, I wasn't even like legal age. I you had to be twenty one to get in there. And yeah. uh, my buddy one 
Sam Smith's and tickets off a local radio station. So we're at the age where we're big, you know, and I mean, we're just finally, you know, getting, you know, our fucking perver- pervert mustaches and, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, we're finally, you know, growing, growing some hair. So we go up and they give us our tickets, no, no problem. And we walk in and watch Sam Kinison do his thing on stage. So, like, he comes back a couple of months later, and we go up, and instead of trying to buy tickets, we just walked in like we were supposed to be there, and nobody even questioned us. And, yeah. again, we got to watch Sam Kinison, you know, just you know, the legendary Sam Kinison do his thing. But, you know, I, you know, as a kid, I was gave me, like, what was my other passion besides wrestling? It was probably stand-up comedy, because I was constantly, you know, when I was a channel surfing for wrestling, I was... You know, stand-up comedy was prevalent on TV in the 80s. You know, MTV had the half-hour comedy hour. There's Evening at the Improv. Uh, you know, the early days of A&E, they had you know, a bunch of half-hour comedy specials, too. So you could see a young Drew Carey or, you know, uh, you see a young Dave Spade doing, uh, you know, before he started movies, he was doing stand-up comedy, doing killer impressions of Tom Petty and stuff like that. Yeah. Or a young Adam Sandler, you know. Yeah, you no, get, I, I guess it's like whenever guy. I, you know, it's just because I'm, I'm I guess I'm spoiled just because I'm around it so much that, like, you know, whenever I see, like, for instance, when I, went to, when I went to go see New Japan or, you know, when I go see a concert, like, because I'm just so used to seeing great comedy. I, I, I bet you if, like, it's a great musician or a great wrestler, you know, like, and I'm not saying I'm great, but a good wrestler or a good musician, and then they go see a comedy show, they're like, oh, no, this is the thing. You know, it's whatever you're not used to being watched as a high level. Um, yeah, because when you see, you know, when you, when you go there and you see guitars like Eddie Van Halen or comedian like Dave Chappelle or you're watching, you know, even a quarterback like Tom Brady and who you and I probably both get annoyed by as a Giants fan and as an Eagles <laughs> fan. Um, <laughs> it's You're just watching some somebody at their absolute highest level doing something that everyone else wants to do. Um, yeah. Uh, what was it like, uh, you know, and this is just a fanboy question. I try to stay away from these, but what was it like working with Dustin, man? Gold dust. And he's somebody I have so much respect for in the business. I'm sorry. My phone cut out. Uh, I said, what was it like working with, uh, Dustin gold dust? Are you talking about gold dust? Yeah. Uh, gold dust was, you know, I was so fortunate to, 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 to team up with him. You know, uh, the dude, especially in the attitude era, you know, you know, and the Goldust is doing amazing things now. You know, the, the fact that he's still there 25 years later or whatever is amazing. But, you know, Dustin, you know, Goldust, Dustin, the guy is a trip to be around. You talk about, you know, uh, you know, people are just naturally funny. You know, I, I find myself you know, in my personal life, being attracted to people who are just characters, yeah. natural characters. They could be famous or not famous. I have friends who, in my life, I got people in my life who I could just, like, imitate, you know, just because, you know, they're a character and they, they crack me up. Dustin is uh, an amazing guy and yeah. uh, he helped me a lot. You know, in, in this business, you're always learning and uh well it's interesting you, you know, know we uh, mentioned Tourette's like I'm sorry? I've, I've actually met people with Tourette's and it's it's very different like you know the cartoonish thing is like oh they just drop a bunch of f-bombs or they curse all the times but that's a sometimes it's just like a sound or something I it's like I when I saw it, I was like oh man this is like 
what everybody's got a cross to bear. That's a that's a rock to carry, you know. Um, in but, your in your mind, like what is uh for you like uh, what was like I, I I just asked Colt this, but what in, in your because we got to wrap this up in a second here. I'm sorry. And by the way, the, I'm very new at interviewing, so I apologize uh, for my terrible transitions. But um, uh, what, it's okay, man. It's okay. We're, <laughs> we're calling it on the fly. Yeah. What's uh what 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 was the highest point? I'm not talking about career wise, like oh I made the most money this night or I got this title. What was the highest serotonin you felt felt during a wrestling match, and what was without a doubt the lowest point you felt emotionally during a wrestling match? Oh man, uh, there's so many cool things I've gotten to do. Uh, you know, uh, there, there's a wrestling reporter named Wade Keller and I was talking to him and we used to interview him at the end of, at the end of, he, at the end of the interview he called me the Forrest Gump of pro wrestling because <laughs> I've, I've gotten to be like you know you know I was there you know for ECW's hottest period I was there for WWE's hottest period I was there for so many good things I was there for a lot of bad things too uh, but I guess like personally for me I mean, it's so hard. I guess I, ultimately, I guess the highest of highs would probably be able to do WrestleMania in my hometown of Philadelphia. No, I got. Uh, yeah, I forgot that was in Philly. Philadelphia. Was, I mean, was I, your whole it, family there? A, a multi-layered answer, but you know, I was born in Philadelphia, uh, partially raised in Philadelphia. I have this. I, I'm a, the ultimate Philadelphia homer. Uh, I'm. The ultimate Philadelphia apologist, you know, I, you know, I'll know, you know, every sports team, whatever, you know, Phillies, Eagles, you know, Flyers, whatever. But you know, ECW essentially was, you know, Philadelphia's fourth sports team. So, you know, I got to join ECW, a Philadelphia promotion in my hometown of Philadelphia. I got to join WWE, uh, the ultimate wrestling promotion I ever wanted to join since I was a kid in my hometown in Philadelphia in front of, you know, Philadelphia fans. And then I got to have, you know, the WrestleMania 15 moment in my hometown of Philadelphia. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like ultimate, like, you know, like if you, you would have scripted it, people are like, ah, oh, that's too fucking corny, you know, yeah. but, you know, or that's too freaking corny. But, you know, just, the, you know, the highest point would have to be Philadelphia in front of, you know, my hometown crowd on the biggest stage there is to have, you know, managing gold dust, you know. That's awesome. Uh, the dude. lowest lows would probably, you know, uh, uh, I mean, everybody expects me to say the JBL thing, but in some ways the JBL thing, you know, as bad as it was, was kind of a, a blessing in disguise because, uh, you know, it sucked, it happened. Uh, but I was at a period of my life, you know, there's a period of my life between, you know, 2000 and 2004, 2005, I called just the, the, the black years where, you know, uh, you know, I'd spent released from WWE and then, uh, I got into a shitty relationship and then that shitty relationship. Then I thought basically, I thought my career was over and then, you know, as, you know, you know, battle on depression and stuff like that. And then you know, the JBL thing happens and then, you know, that doesn't help things. But ultimately, 
you know, we got, you know, me and him got into a room together. We talked things out. He apologized. And, uh, you know, we, we're still friends to this day, which a lot of people don't even realize, but we made up all those years later ago. And he almost got me into the World Rumble here in Philadelphia. He lobbied to get me in. But, you know, uh, you know, that, after that incident, I started, you know, finding myself again, you know, and, you know, people started, you know, remembering me again, you know, because there's a period where I just didn't give a crap anymore. And here I was, you know, the whole JBL incident kind of lit a fire under my ass to where I was like, I became, you know, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of, the biggest thing is, you know, sometimes anger could be a gift. And I was out there talking and then, you know, I became semi-relevant again. And then, you know, through this bad, that bad incident, you know, came a good thing. So, and here I am. So anyone suffering from depression, please have like JBL that, yeah. beat the shit out of you. It works better than Lexapro. No, I said. I said. Anyone suffering from depression, please have JBL beat the shit out of you. Works better than Lexapro. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. I mean, it was it was a messed up incident, but you know, it's it's something to learn from. And I guess the ultimate low of the low is uh, you know also being there with the you know, the night on heart past. So yeah, that's something. I, that's something I really wouldn't wish on anybody. You know, just. I mean, just the fact that, you know, how many people uh, it affected, you know. I mean, ultimately ultimately, how it affected, you know, Owen's family and stuff like that. But just the shockwave it sent, you know, just seeing grown men who, you know, you think are the toughest guys just, you know, at their most vulnerable, you know, because we lost, you know, a valuable human being. You know, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, every life's valuable, but that one was a special breed. So, uh, that, you know, that would probably be, you know, I'm not going to get too far into that, but. No, no, I mean, you know, everything I've heard about Owen is just, you know, besides, I know, I just know him as a fan and just how terrific he was to watch. And when you were a kid, you really genuinely hated him, you know, when he was a heel. And then when when he was the Blue Blazer, you were genuinely laughing. You're like, oh, this is a community gimmick that works. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's so tragic, um, the whole situation, but the amount of people that he touched along the way, you know, it, I mean, it, it's incredible. There's, there's no one you hear more positive things about, I feel, you know, um, but, uh, you know, I'm sorry you went through that, man. That's, that's, that's fucking, that's rough, man. That's, that's a real shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a moment when life definitely got real and, uh, the crazy thing about that one hard thing is he was the blue blazer. You know, he was wrestling. He was going to wrestle as the blue blazer, and I wrestled as the blue meanie. So when news broke that the blue blazer died, my friends and family who were listening to the news or whatever heard pro wrestler dies, the blue, you know, dot, dot, dot. They're oh, expecting no. them to say the blue meanie died. And uh, my phone blew up. Oh you know, my God. family friends calling to make sure I was okay. And out of a, like a horrible situation like that, I found out you know, who my real friends were, and you know, I've learned you know, how much my family cared for me. Yeah. So if you want to know if your family loves you, fake your own death, everybody, um, and then they'll either come through or won't. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, I mean that, that's uh, that's that's fucking crazy, man. I mean, we you know on comedy, you, you we we, we, we 
you know, I mean, it happens, but it's, 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 you know, it, everybody's kind of on the road alone, you know? So when you hear if somebody passes away, unfortunately, it's like, you know, yeah. days later yeah. and it's like, you know, in a fucking hotel room, you know, it's, which, I mean, there's plenty of that in wrestling too, but something that's just so like brutally tragic and, and uh, I can't even fucking imagine it, you know? Um, yeah. But, um, but, but, uh, on a, I know. I guess on a lighter note, just to you know, want to end on, you know, uh, like because you know, Owen Owen was like the king of ribs. Was there a rib that was ever pulled on you by by a wrestler in the ring or something that happened? You know, we hear the famous stories of you know Andre shitting his pants or something like that. But something in the ring that happened that was just completely unexpected that, in hindsight, was just fucking hilarious. Uh, you know, sometimes ribs can be done to test people. And uh, when I first, you know, got in TCW, uh, you know, I was still young and stuff like that. And uh, there was a, t- a time when, you know, I was managing Raven. And, you know, me and Stevie were at ringside with Raven. And one night he's wrestling Shane Douglas. So they're laying out the match. And Shane Douglas comes up to me and goes, oh, well, Brian, uh, uh, at this point, you know, come in the ring. I'll be down. Go to do a moonsault, you know, like you're going to try to finish me off a raven. I move out of the way. Boom. You you hit the mat, roll out of the ring, and then I uh, crawl under the ring. I was like, all right. He's like, and then after the match and all that stuff, I'll come, you know, I, you know, go under the ring. I'll pull you out. I'll pull you in the ring, hit you with the belly to belly, and you roll out, and, you know, we'll get the pop, you know, whatever. So I'm like, all right. So we're, I'm watching the match, and. Stevie does something in there, and I think Nova at the time was there. He did something, and then I run in. You know, Shane's down. I act like I'm going to moonsault him. So I go up to the top. I do the moonsault. Land. I crash and burn. I roll out of the ring. I go underneath the ring like, you know, Shane had instructed me to do. And then, like, the match goes on. The match finishes. And then Shane gets on the mic. And I'm like, Oh shit, he forgot about the spot. I said, Oh shit. So I, I'm underneath the mat, I'm underneath the ring, and like he's, you know, he's cutting his free Shane Douglas promo. Mm-hmm. So I'm under the ring, and I'm laying on my back, and I start kicking up towards the mat. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, for him to feel the ring shake, like, <laughs> then, you know, trying to remind him that I was under there. And I was like, I was like, Shane, Shane, you know, doo, 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 doo. he gets on, he gets off the mic, they hit his music, he leaves. You know, the ring announcer gets on, thanks for coming to the show. Well, <laughs> thanks for that. Blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, oh, shit. So, like, I'm laying there. I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And then, like, eventually I just slowly crawl out, like, you know, Homer Simpson from the bushes and uh, make my way back to the back. And people are like, to, I like to wait it long enough to where people are tearing down the chairs and stuff like that. And I go to the back and she goes, Oh man, I forgot about it. Blah blah blah. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Blah blah blah. And, and then like later, later on, Raven, you know, was like, you know, he per- he did that on purpose, right? <laughs> he was just doing that to you know, to touch you, see how you react. But you know, it's like, you know, you're, I was genuinely, genuinely worried that I had messed oh, up or something got messed up. That's but so fucked in, up. It's in so the, funny in the too. Eyes of them, I took the rip so well that it made me even more part of the locker room because they knew I. They could see, I, you know, I wasn't like a, a jerk about it, you know. Also, so, that's not like one of those yeah. ribs, you know. It's not like what JBL did to you. You know what I mean? It's like just that's just like that's just that's just funny. 
<laughs> you know. Like, uh, uh, the best rips are, the, are, are harmless, you know, and they, they call, you know, they don't, you know, the best rips are the ones that, you know, don't do any, you know, bodily harm or it doesn't cost anybody money, you know, stuff like that. You hear nightmare stories about, like, you know, you know, Marty Gennetti, you know, ribbing people or, you know, Diane McKibb ribbing people and stuff like that. So, or the Nasty Boys ribbing people. Thank God they like me. Yeah, you know? thank God. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely fortunate to get you know ripped by one of the good guys. You know? Yeah, well, dude, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, is there anything you'd like to promote? Hey, man, thanks for having me. First of all, uh, you killed it at the roast. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, and you were so down to earth, and uh, I became a I became a fan of you not only as a comedian but as a person. So oh. thank you for having me. Well, thank you, buddy. Uh, I mean, same here. Whenever uh, you're in New York or in Philly, we should meet up and uh, try to eat a salad together and not set us off on a Dairy Queen path together, you know? Although maybe we'd Bonnie and Clyde it and end up at, like, fucking four Philly cheesesteak places. Who knows? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but like like, uh, like you are saying, if anybody wants to follow me on uh, social media, they can find me at BlueMeNeeBWO on Twitter and Instagram. Uh if you want to support the Blue Meanie, uh, you can buy one of the uh, famous BWO shirts at ProWrestlingTees.com slash Blue Meanie. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of I'll be at uh, Russell Kate this November. Uh, I just did, you know, the StarCast thing. Uh, it's very busy, you know, trying to uh, get out there and say hello to the fans and uh do what I do. <laughs> but, again, thank you for having me. No, oh, th- awesome. thank you. And, uh yeah, just uh, my album, No Real Winners Here, is still out there. Please rate and review and subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't like it, don't tell them, you know? Um, but uh, if you like it, tell them. And uh, I have all my dates on my website. Um, I'm not sure if this is coming out this week or the week after. So um, check that out. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm gonna, I should be on The Ringer this month. Still co-hosting with David Shoemaker, Total Left and Marks, and that's just my take on current wrestling um, and uh, and what's going on on Raw that week. And I'm kind of changing the podcast more. You know, we get to this podcast is going to be more focused on interviewing wrestlers and and doing things like you know watching like you know botched pay per views. Like you know, we watched WCW's Greed. You know, last week or two weeks ago, depending on when we upload this. Um, so yeah, you know, both, both podcasts are doing totally different things. So don't be afraid to listen to both. Uh, thanks so much again, Brian. And, uh, you have a good one, buddy. Have a great time, buddy. Take care. Thanks.